Welcome back to Pinpoint History, everyone. Episode 22, Looking East. So, like I said last week, or two weeks rather, we'll be taking a quick pause on the narrative to discuss the history of the Persian Empire. The history of Persia to me is incredibly fascinating. The Persian Empire was the first superpower in history. The whole region of the empire spanned from the Indus Valley to the east all the way to parts of the Balkans in the west at its height. For centuries, the power balance in these areas had been dominated by the remnants of the Bronze Age civilizations. Persia would encompass all the territory of the greatest powers that lived in these regions, Egypt, Assyria, the Akkadians, Babylon, and the Phoenician cities of the Levant. This specific Persian Empire is known to us as the Achaemenid Persian Empire, and all subsequent empires in Persia will be influenced and inspired by this ancient giant. Shapur I of the Sasanian Empire would invade the Roman Empire, intent on recreating the borders of this ancient empire. The Persian Empire at the time of Philip's death in 336 had been experiencing high levels of court intrigue which plagued the stability of the empire. Like all empires, your time at the top is limited. It doesn't matter the length of your run. All that matters is that your time in the sun will inevitably fade away. Entropy will inevitably set in. By the time of Alexander's invasion, the Persian Empire was a shell of its former self. That did not mean that it was weak by any means but rather it suffered from numerous ailments, like a blow to bureaucracy. Its army was not once the power it was. The Persians had a vast amount of citizens to draw an army from, but they did not have a standing army like the Macedonians did. The satrapies, the Persian designation for the word province, were being run corruptly, and internal politics had become messy due to power-hungry officials. Some of the satraps, the word for governor, operated with major autonomy, and as long as they paid their taxes to the central government, they were left alone to run things as they saw fit. Local uprisings would be put down by the satraps, for instance, instead of a royal response at first. The Persian Empire during Alexander's invasion reminds me of a quote from the book Dune Messiah. Empires do not suffer emptiness of purpose at the time of their creation. It is when they have become established that aims are lost and replaced by vague ritual. Over two centuries have passed since the rise of Cyrus and the invasion of Persia by Alexander. The empire had grown complacent over time. The unifying spirit of conquest under Cyrus, Cambyses II, and Darius was gone. Once your enemies are no longer around, your gaze turns inwards. Competing interests vie for supremacy. Still, the system of governance allowed for taxation to occur at a highly sophisticated centralized level for its time. It had a royal road, a managed highway system from Susa, deep in the Persian territory, all the way to Sardis, a city close to the Aegean Sea on the western shores of what is now Turkey. Centralized taxation and roads on this level are not really seen until the Roman Empire, and after that, other trade-based centralized empires from the 13th century and on. Persia could draw the funds necessary to wage war when needed, and it had vast territories from which it could draw soldiers. Like I said earlier, the Persian corps did not have a standing army, 
but had a core of trained professionals from the nobility and notably hired plenty of Greek mercenaries. The rest of the army would be drawn from the citizens. Well, enough of the preamble. Let us begin the story of the Persian Empire. Before the Persians became the predominant superpower, there were four powers in the territory that would ultimately be encompassed by Persia. The Median Empire, the Neo-Babylonians, the Lydian Kingdom, and lastly, Egypt. Though by this point, Egypt's prestige was from its history and not its power. The three powers in Egypt were all relatively at peace with each other in the year 560 BC. The king of Media, Cyaxares, married his granddaughter to one of the kings of Anshah, one of the vassal states. Cyaxares' son, Astyages, would rule after his father's death in 585 and had become king. His daughter, Mandane, had been married to Cambyses by at least 603 BC, and the union produced a boy, Cyrus, in 600 BC. And that boy would change the balance of power drastically. In 559, Cyrus's father died, and he became king of Anshaw. We know that by 553 BCE, Cyrus revolted against the Median Empire, and that by 550, he had defeated the empire and taken the capital of the Median Empire, Ecbatana. Astyages was dethroned in 550, and his grandson Cyrus now became the king of Media. While Cyrus conquered the kingdom of Lydia and the Neo-Babylonians, the takeover of the Median Empire doesn't fit the term conquered, but feels like a hostile takeover in business. If you've ever seen the movie Megamind, you'll know the quote, I wouldn't say freed, but under new management. A province within the Median Empire revolts against the current government. It wins, and then installs itself as the new head. Obviously, it was very beneficial to Cyrus that the current king is his grandfather. Kind of getting a whiff of nepotism here. Now, if you're wondering how Cyrus and his smaller forces and resources beat out the larger state, a general of the Median Empire revolted against the king and joined Cyrus, providing the coup de grace. To gain some insight, we can turn our attention to our historian of this time, Herodotus. Now, I understand some people have a bone to pick with the father of history himself, claiming that he's serving up some alternative facts, but here's a quote. I am bound to tell what I am told, but not in every case to believe it. So, it means he's just telling us what he's heard. He's just reporting the news back to us. Doesn't mean he believes it. So, with that caveat out of the way, we turn back in the sands of time to the birth of Cyrus. The Median king Astyages dreamt that his daughter would give birth to a son who would end his empire. If you're a fan of Greek mythology, it resonates with the stories of Uranus and Kronos. Astyages married off his daughter to Cambyses of Anshaw because he was a relevant nobody who would be incapable of conceiving a revolt. This later was not enough, and another dream plagued the king of the Medes, still warning him about his grandson. Astyages was resolved to end this matter by killing the babe 
and sent his general Harpagus to kill the baby Cyrus. Harpagus, though, for whatever reason, did not have it in him to kill the baby. So, he gave the child to a shepherd to raise because his wife had given birth to a stillborn. Harpagus then took the dead baby and presented it to Astyages as proof of the deed. I wonder how the conversation between Harpagus and the shepherd went. Hey dude, I heard your baby was born dead. Tough deal, but you're in luck. I just happen to have an alive baby and I'm willing to make a trade. Anyways, all was good in the hood for 10 years. Astyages had no more dreams about being overthrown, but when Cyrus was 10, during a game of whatever it was the youths played back then, the shepherd had a son of a nobleman beaten when he didn't listen to Cyrus's command. This particular bit of news made it back to Astyages, who found it very odd. Astyages had Cyrus and the shepherd brought to court, where he spoke with them. Eventually, the shepherd spilt the beans on the weird deal he had made ten years ago with Harpagus, and Astyages realized the boy with his grandson. The ruse was up, and Cyrus was sent to his biological parents to be raised by them, and the shepherd went home without a kid, which is kind of sad for him. If you're wondering why Cyrus was sent back to his parents instead of being killed, it's because Astyages' soothsayers had said that Cyrus had been playing as king which fulfilled the terms of the prophecy which had worried the old king. Astyages was furious with his general and decided to pull one of the most deranged acts I've had the misfortune to read, and now we will share with you. Astyages decided to host a large banquet and invited all the nobles and premier citizens of their time. The drinks are flowing, and everyone is eating and having a good time. Astyages decides to check in on Harpagus. How do you find the food? Is it to your taste? Harpagus obliged his sovereign and told him everything tasted delicious. And Astyages was very pleased to hear that. The old king proceeds to inform Harpagus that his meal was made special today and motions a chef over with a platter and a lid over it. The lid is removed to reveal Harpagus' only son and child. On the platter is his son's head, hands, and feet. Astyages had fed Harpagus his only son, and apparently Harpagus did not react or show any emotion, simply took the platter and buried what remained of his son. Pretty gruesome. Harpagus would remember this moment and maintain a correspondence with the young Cyrus and probably helped nudge the man towards rebellion. So, what can we take from this story? I have taken that there was bad blood between Harpagus and Astyages, and during the rebellion of Cyrus, there was an opportunity to switch sides and leave the old king high and dry. What the true reason was is lost to us. It could be a simple fact that Cyrus was poised to win, and the general defected to preserve himself and the lives of his men. However, it happened, by 550, Cyrus was in charge of the Median Empire and set his eyes on more conquest. First up on the docket was the Kingdom of Lydia, ruled by the richest man alive at the time, Croesus. In the mid-40s at some point, the Kingdom of Lydia struck first, attacking the city of Pateria. Croesus sacked the city and took the citizens as slaves. 
Pretext in hand, Cyrus raised an army to fight the Lydians and made battle outside the city. Apparently it was a hard-fought battle with lots of bloodshed, but the battle ended in a stalemate. And the war paused for a moment with winter settling in. The following year, when winter was almost up, Cyrus launched a surprise attack on the capital of the Lydian kingdom, Sardis. The sudden winter attack caught the Lydian kingdom off guard, and after defeating the Lydians in battle and a short siege of the capital, Cyrus was once again victorious. Again, Cyrus displayed an unusual level of clemency. He had King Croesus spared and made him an advisor. I forgot to mention earlier that he had also spared his grandfather Astyages and also kept him around as an advisor. There is a caveat to the statement, however, about Croesus, and there allegedly are two different versions of the same story, but it goes like this. Croesus was to be burned at a funeral pyre, the diversions of the story being that it was either Cyrus's idea or the other, in his shame at being defeated, Croesus did it to himself. As the pyre was lit and the flames began to engulf Croesus, Rains fell from the heavens, put the fire out. Interpreted as a sign, Croesus was spared and advised Cyrus for the rest of his life, becoming one of his closest advisors. It reminds me of hangings and how the person was typically allowed to go free if the rope broke. However it happened, Cyrus was now the largest power, having combined the sizable territory of Media and now Lydia. The Ionian Greek cities on the coast submitted to Cyrus, and it was these coastal towns that would spark the war between Greece and Persia a generation later. Now, Cyrus turned his gaze towards the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, Nabonidus, had put himself into a bit of a sticky situation. Nabonidus had alienated himself from the priestly class and citizens by neglecting their patron deity, Marduk, and was instead promoting the worship of their moon god, Sin. The crucial turning point for Nabonidus was that when he went on pilgrimage to restore temples dedicated to the moon god, he failed to return to the city of Babylon to preside over a religious festival dedicated to Marduk. The citizens felt disrespected, and that was the final straw. When Cyrus decided to invade the Babylonians, he was met with little resistance, and he was able to take the city of Babylon without bloodshed. This was by 539 BC, and it was the last conquest of Cyrus's reign. He would die nine years later in 530 BC. The accounts of his death differ, with some saying it was in battle against a steppe tribe, and another claiming he died in bed. Either way, by the time of his death, he would have been roughly 70 years old, so I'm inclined to believe that it was in bed, not in battle, but you never know. The rise of Cyrus and the empire he built left an institution that was rock solid, and it would be built on further by his successors, which I'll talk about next week. I want to wrap this episode up by talking about the tolerance Cyrus exhibited during his reign, which would end up defining the Persian Empire. 
Cyrus let the rivals he defeated live on in relative peace and stability. His grandfather Astyages, the king of Lydia Croesus, and the Babylonian king Nabonidus. The incorporation of such a multi-ethnic empire would need to allow for concessions, and Cyrus, whether from a cynical perspective or genuine respect, I imagine a bit of both, did that. Cyrus allowed the conquered territories to worship the deities they wished openly and freely. One of the most striking examples of this is after the conquest of Babylon, Cyrus freed the Jews and allowed them to return to Jerusalem and provided funds to help rebuild the Temple of Solomon, an act that would have earned him much goodwill from the Jews and has to this day. This temple would be around from the mid-530s until its destruction in 70 AD by the Romans. That's over 600 years. An empire allowed to worship as it will freely and openly, without harsh restrictions, worked for Cyrus. And as long as he got that sweet, sweet tax revenue, Cyrus and his successors were happy to leave the people to worship freely and live how they wanted. Establishing a centralized bureaucracy with civil servants working in the government, ethnic and religious freedom, and trusted satraps appointed to rule by Cyrus was crucial in creating this highly successful empire. Cyrus created a system that would be improved upon, but the foundational aspects of what improved came from Cyrus. This is an empire that, when it became conquered by Alexander, left the system intact. The centralized bureaucracy will outlive many of the successors who will take over, whether it's Alexander, the Seleucid Empire, the Parthians, the Sassanids, or the Arab Caliphate almost 1,200 years later. All would see the benefit of the system established by Cyrus, a long-lasting legacy that should be recognized. When Cyrus died in 530, he left behind two sons, his eldest son Cambyses became the king of kings, while his younger son Bardia was given a region in the Far East to rule and will be allowed to keep the territory's tax revenue. Cyrus also had three daughters as well. Artistone, who was married to her brother Cambyses in the famous Habsburg style, Atusa, and Roxanne. Next week, We'll talk about the reign of Cambyses II and his conquest of Egypt, bringing in the last major territorial gain the Persian Empire will have, and also, perhaps, one of the most interesting potential revisions of history I've ever had to learn about. Like always, if you like what you heard, give the podcast five stars and a review. I'll have maps on Instagram, so you can see that at pinpoint underscore history. And you can email me at thepinpointhistory at gmail.com. And like I said, I'm on Twitter at HistoryPinpoint. And you can find me on Facebook. I'm finally on all social media. Maybe I'll make a TikTok account. Who knows? Anyways, I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, let's get it.